This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Product Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. My name is Katie Johnson. I am currently a lead UX researcher at Google, working in the assistant team on AI and LLMs. And I come from a little bit of a weird background. I started my career in aerospace engineering, moved to innovation strategy for a couple of years, served as a product manager, program director, and ultimately landed in UX research for now. So yeah, that's my that's my background currently at Google. Hi all, my name's Madhya, currently a product manager at Speckit. I've been at Speckit for, I would say almost two years. It was my first role out of college. So really just soaking a lot of information in and just learning kind of in the startup world. Uh, I'm Lou Cirillo, I'm a senior group product manager at Zero, and I look over our cloud data and core infrastructure. I was at Ibotta with Kevin, which is where I met him at Speckit, which is where I met Maria. I've done product management across basically every part of the company you could imagine from technology infrastructure through UX design and everything else. My name is Corinne. I'm a product designer at ShareThru. I work with Kevin and I've been in the product design realm for about a year and a half coming from a graphic design background, but I'm still fairly new and learning all of this. I'm Lindsay Thrift. I had product management at a place called Focus Labs. We're a boutique consultancy that works with mid to large size enterprises. I have a history in startups and consulting everywhere from enterprises to large companies to federal government organizations. So I love thinking about how high-performing teams build high-quality software. I tend to find myself in places to make teams do better, build better products obsessed with thinking about the best ways to get us where we want to be. Let's kick us off. Top of mind for Corinne and myself, we work at an ad tech company. There are two-sided marketplaces in SSP, supply-side platform. We have challenged that I've seen a lot of similar B2B challenges getting direct access to our customers. And one of the ways that we are doing that is building a community. We're building what we're calling Share Through Insiders, where we can have this portal to get people to sign up, to be a part, to have a dialogue with them that is not necessarily through the sales and customer success team, this client relationship. So that is one thing that we're kind of pursuing. Where do we start, Katie? Is this something that you have a playbook for? What advice would you give to us? Yeah. I mean, I think always getting started is the hardest part, right? Because I think when you bring user research to the table, I always joke around that it would be really weird for people to say that they don't like UX researchers or user research, right? It'd be like saying you hate puppies. Like, even if you hate puppies, you know, socially, you probably shouldn't tell anybody that, right? So if you hear people say, like, I don't like user research, that would be a pretty big shock to me. I think people are usually like, even if I don't know how to use user research, I want it. I, I like it. I care about it. And so you're kind of coming to the table in a place where people are open to being part of something, which is a great starting point. And yet 
there's so much to do. And I think a lot of times people don't know exactly how to use things like qualitative research or even quantitative research, frankly. I think people feel like they know how to use quantitative research. And one of the great secrets of quantitative research is it can be as misleading, if not perhaps more misleading than qualitative research. And so it's really important to get tight alignment early on in the process. So you talked about access, which I'll come to in a little bit. But in general, what I find is that the biggest problem with user research is that we kind of just go off and do it without getting tight alignment from people on why or what we're trying to learn. So when I come into a new space where I haven't been, you know, in relationship with people before, I first of all approach this as two research projects in one. In other words, I'm always doing two research projects. I am studying the people that everyone thinks I'm studying, the end users or perhaps the, you know, the users that we're targeting. But I'm also studying my cross-functional stakeholders because Knowing how they make decisions and understanding what kind of data moves them and how they change their minds is what matters. I have come to a point in my career where I believe wholeheartedly that my job, I am in the business of changing minds. If I'm coming to the table to tell you something that you already know about your users, then I'm a redundant resource that's not adding any value. You know, maybe that happens once in a while, but in general, like, I shouldn't be telling you something you already know unless it's something you're not sure about and I'm making you sure. If I'm telling you something that you don't know and you don't agree with me and you trust your gut so much that you completely go in a different direction, then either one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to be right, which in general, product managers get where they are because they're right a lot and that they've developed really good guts over time, right? So if you continue and I tell you that users aren't going to like that or they don't understand that and then you do it anyway and it rewards you, then you're going to not trust me in that the research is not as good as your gut. And if you go forward and you fall down, then you're going to be mad that I didn't intervene more or try to stop you harder or bring you more compelling data. So my job, the only way that I can do my job well as a researcher is to change your mind regularly and then have it work out, which is a big ask when you think about it. And so when you zoom out of that problem at a high level, then the thing that I most need to do in my entire job is make sure that I'm understanding what decisions you need to make, what questions you have, and how you, in your world, use information that comes into your brain to make decisions. That being a long way to say that I come into any kind of team like you're talking about, first interviewing every single person that sits at the decision table. So I would go around and meet every single person. We'd talk about the weather. You know, I would probably ask you some innocuous or seemingly innocuous questions about a restaurant you went to recently or a trip you went on recently or maybe why you live where you live. You're going to tell me something like, oh, I went to this amazing restaurant last night and had this really great meal. It was this amazing chicken and it just changed my life. I'm going to say something like, how did you decide to order the chicken? And you're going to say, well, before we went to the restaurant, I went online and I looked at all the reviews and I saw that 90% of the people that said that they loved the restaurant and said that they loved the chicken. Well, now you've just told me that you're a quantitative decision maker. If you instead tell me that Lindsay told you last night that she went to that restaurant and she had the chicken and it changed her life, you're a qualitative decision maker. And now I know that about you. And so now I know that I'm going to construct data and go looking for data for you specifically that is going to have that kind of attribute to it. I do that with every single person that sits at that decision table before we even start. And in doing that, I build up a list of assumptions that y'all have made about the product you're building. Then before we even begin research, I send out those assumptions to you all in a list and have you force rank them. And then we come to the table together and go through those assumptions one by one 
looking where not you have agreement, but in fact, where you're not aligned. Often I'll find that, you know, Kevin, you might think that this attribute of a user product or some kind of research is the most important, or you've made an assumption about how users will behave. And on the other hand, Lindsay completely thinks that that is not going to affect the product one way or the other. That's what we, we, we do, like basically a 90 minute workshop to kind of come into that space and together align on a four ranked list of assumptions. And then we build the research from there. So I know that was a very long answer to your question. But the reason that I do that is if we get that alignment super tight in the beginning, and I understand not only what questions you have, what assumptions you've made, but how you make decisions and change your mind. Now we've aligned that in the next three to six months, I'm going to go out and get the answers to the most pressing questions that are plaguing our entire group and make sure that we're aligned on coming back to the table with the answers to those questions in the form of user research. And then we're going to make decisions going forward. That usually greases the wheels for getting access to users because you've reminded people that they really need this information. And there's only one way to get it, which is that they need to give you access to the users so that you can go get the answers to their questions so that they don't fall on their face in the next gate review or at product launch or some other much more high profile time. Long answer, but that's how I begin to go about getting access to research or users. You mentioned a 90 minute workshop. Tell me more. Is this something you created yourself? Is this a tool out of the box that you have at any moment? You know, it's a tool that is, I I feel like it's unfair in any discipline these days to say you created something yourself because you use so much that you've learned, or at least I rely on so much I've learned in other places. I would say that I created my version of this because I've done research that sat in a drawer. And that is the worst feeling in the world. You spend six months with users and then you come to the table and you tell their stories and you advocate for them. And then that research gets thrown in a drawer, physical or metaphorical or virtual now. There's nothing worse than that. And so this was kind of over the course of my career, I have found that workshops and bringing people to the table are a really powerful tool. The reason I say 90 minutes is that nowadays workshops are virtual and 90 minutes is about the like absolute max of time that people can emotionally handle being in a virtual space co-creating before one of them starts like doing emails or turning their camera off and like watering plants or something else is happening. And so 90 minutes has become like a space for me that I feel like can be incredibly productive where people can come and be focused and really get something done. And the thing that I find about the 90 minutes is that in those 90 minutes, so we come into the space, people having had each, let's call it 45 to 60 minutes with me individually in advance. So I already have relationships with all of them, right? That have even even if they're fledgling relationships, there's something. And we've talked about a lot of different things, usually something personal for the reasons I said before, and something professional and obviously the product in question, et cetera. So I have a pretty good idea of who these people are. Then I've also done this survey in advance. So I come into this workshop with what we like to call God mode, right? In that I know where we don't need to spend time and where we do need to spend some time. So usually first, I bring them up to speed on the fact that they're not aligned, which most people, most teams think they're more aligned than they are. And so it's a really big kind of awakening moment for us as a team to see, hey, your lead eng, and the last team I worked on at Google, the head of product and the head of UX and the head of eng had literally opposing assumptions when we force ranked them. Opposing. In fact, the UX lead and the PM had completely inversely ranked the priorities. So the only one they had in common was the one in the middle. Okay, that's terrifying. <laughs> but they didn't know. They were going to meetings thinking they were aligned and they weren't. And so we start off that by saying, hey, 
when we just look at the raw numbers, we're not getting into who voted for what, you're not aligned. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to offer an olive branch. We're going to start with the one that you you do agree on, the one that's at five. It's pretty innocuous. No one's going to fight hard for it. Cool. Then after we get one on the table and we agree and we've like all done something, I also use this method that I learned when I was at Consensus that was kind of a variation of something my husband, who's a data scientist, used at Oracle, is especially in virtual meetings, there's a lot of channels for disagreement to happen where you might not know. In a workshop, it's not a thing that would happen in a real-life workshop where people, while you would be running the workshop, would be like whispering to each other about how they think that you're bad or like that this idea is not smart. But in virtual spaces, people can be on Slack, they can be chatting, they can be texting, they can be making like, they can turn their cameras off so you're not watching them. We came up with this idea when we started running virtual workshops at Consensus, my old partner Zach Herring and I, where we would have people do a hand to five and literally just put your hand right in front of the camera. And for every decision that we make as a group, you have to give me a hand. And the rankings are as follows. Five means I love the decision. Four means I like the decision. Three means I'm fine with the decision. Two means I don't like the decision, but I can live with it. And one means I'm actively going to undermine the decision because I think it's so bad that I can't handle it, right? And so we make this alignment that as a team, only if somebody throws a one are we going to stop. That effectively eliminates the need for people to say things redundantly just so they kind of get their time in the sun. And it effectively kind of eradicates the need for discussion with decisions that people don't love but can live with. So what happens is once we use that hand to five method to get the first bucket on the table, the first like prioritized item, we then go to the hardest one, the most contentious one, the one where people disagree the most. And we say we set a timer again, like there's all these tools now in like Mural and Fig Jam and et cetera. You can set a timer and say, look, we're going to have five minutes of discussion. I can tell you already that Lou and Corinne are completely opposing views. So why don't we, because I know. So Lou, why don't you go first and you say your piece for a minute and then Corinne's going to follow and say their piece for, you know, another minute. And then we're all going to come back to the space and debate. And in five minutes, I'm going to do a hand to five vote. And if we can get alignment to put it in this case, it's pretty easy because basically you just need to rank it against the one that's in the middle. Once we get there, you can just start to fill this out, right? And so once, and, and then literally 90 minutes later, you have a force ranked list of priorities from most important to least. And you, the researcher and the product manager and the UX and Eng and all the other cross-functional stakeholders are aligned on what you need to learn and what decisions you need to make in the next three to six months to keep the product alive, which is a just hugely rich way to go off into the world to conduct research together. Katie, I'm kind of curious. There are people out there who are like, I never want to say I don't like UX research and everything else. It kind of occurs to me, and from what you're talking about, that maybe it's some people don't know how to use UX research properly. 100%. And what it's good at being used for. So we've heard from you a little bit about like what it is good for. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what it's not good for and what people try to use it for that doesn't actually help them? This might be a contentious opinion. We'll see. I feel like most UX research familiarity grew out of the world of usability practice, right? In other words, like I think most people are familiar with UX research from the origin story of usability. No slam to usability. I think usability is hugely important. And validation research in general, or what I prefer to call evaluative research, because we're not validating, we're evaluating, right? But largely user research, I think, is reserved in people's minds for the end of the product cycle when we're like getting ready to go to market. Let's take this finished concept out and put it in front of users and see what they think. And then if they don't like that this button is green, we'll change it. If they can't find the cart, 
We'll make it bigger. That is a perfectly acceptable use of user research. I think it's important to do. There's things like heuristic evaluations and things like that that can kind of supplement some of that work before you need to go to users. But I think it puts users at so far at the end of the product life cycle and forces them to only weigh in on something you've already built. And at that point, your heart and soul and your team's heart and soul is so in what you've built that we're not ever going to be able to put massive product changes across the finish line at that point, right? There's just too much sunk cost, which is a fallacy, into what you've built, and it's just too hard to kind of pivot the ship. So at that point, you're using users to make minor changes to things that you've already built. To me, the place where we have so much more work for or more opportunity for user research is, frankly, at the very beginning. And I use user research as one of four perspectives that, you know, Lindsay and I have talked about in an innovation framework that allows us to ideate at the beginning of any product lifecycle. And without user input to, like, what people actually need, in other words, what are they behaviorally doing, not saying they're doing, but what are they behaving that tells you that there's an opportunity for product? In conjunction with other perspectives, of course, that to me is where much more powerful user research can come in. And having user research, foundational user research, generative user research where the users are actually co-creating with you happening throughout the product lifecycle, early in the product lifecycle, is a far more impactful time to have users in the loop than I think only at the end. You mentioned framework. You mentioned four steps. I need to know. What's the the toolkit? Four easy steps. Get into it. Yes, I know. (laughs) It's so... I think the thing that I learned when I was an innovation strategy was that often people say that innovation is a light bulb moment or they talk about these creators that just they just knew they had to build something and they built it. Right. Innovation is actually far more tactical than that. And we can make innovation happen strategically through combining different perspectives. And so I mentioned that one of them is user research. So getting user research, getting some insights into how people behave is one way of looking at perspectives or one perspective rather. It's an external facing perspective that's based around your users. Another external perspective that's very interesting, especially in the world we live in now, is macro or mega trends. So what is the world going to do? Like the world is moving in this way or America at large as a country is moving in this way. People are going to behave differently. Generative AI is a mega trend that's happening right now. We're living through it. Understanding where that is and where it's going to be in six to 12 months or five years, which feels like flying cars for generative AI, as far as how far out it is, is really important. Almost more important are also combining those external perspectives, so megatrends and user research or user needs, we'll call them, with your internal perspectives. So who are you as a company and the people in that company? In other words, what core competencies do you have? What things do you have that you could leverage into new exciting business model that are not easily acquirable by other businesses, couldn't be built in a short amount of time, definitely not one person or one skill value process, something like that could easily be taken by somebody else, right? We're looking for kind of this unique wall of bricks that makes you incredibly well positioned as a core competency to go do this thing. And then the one that I actually love the most is orthodoxies, whether those are industries or internal to your business. How are, you know, I mentioned earlier in this discussion that a lot of product managers get where they are by being really good at their gut, right? Orthodoxies are like that. There are ways that we behave that we now just take for granted, like the internet is free or search is free is a huge orthodoxy that makes it hard for us to 
revisit why we built it that way or maybe if we shouldn't build it that way going forward, right? Business models in general are a huge ripe opportunity for orthodoxies. You know, when we talk about flipping orthodoxies, we talk about businesses like Costco that still have incredibly high value products like wines, for example, that they're able to source and deliver to their customers at really great rates, but don't cost that much money, right? Because they have enormous buying power and maybe really great wine doesn't need to cost a lot of money. Two Buck Chuck is a great example of flipping orthodoxies for those of us that are old enough to remember Two Buck Chuck. That sounds like an enormous amount of work when I say those are four perspectives, but I'm telling you, you can literally get them in, in like 12 weeks. You go out and do user research. In parallel, you can have, you know, someone in marketing or someone or hire a firm to go out and do the Megatrend research, bring back a report for you on what's going on in the world. And then to get the competencies and orthodoxies are literally 90 minute workshops. The competencies workshop at a high level, just because that's what you're going to ask me about next, is to talk about what have you done in the last five years or if you're a newer business, let's say last 12 months, that really worked. And then once you have those ideas as a team of like six or seven people sitting around, you talk about what were the skills, processes, values, assets that we used to have that success. And then you're trying to ladder it up into the core competency. And on the orthodoxy side, you're coming in and saying, what's one thing that we as a business or this group of people would never do? Why would we not do that thing once you have it? And then we act as if blank is true and blank is the orthodoxy. And there's a way to evaluate whether or not your core competencies are really core competencies, because there's a lot of times that especially older businesses, more mature businesses want to claim things as core competencies that aren't truly core competencies. So you would go through kind of like an evaluation process once you have them. But literally, these things can be built over the course of a couple weeks with a small, nimble, passionate team. And then what you do is you come to the table together at the end of those 12 weeks or 10 weeks or however long you want to give yourself to do it. But a quarter is a kind of a nice amount of time. And you say, okay, we have three core competencies that we have. We have a couple industry orthodoxies, let's say five, that we're interested in really flipping or pulling or twisting or changing. We've got a couple of user needs that we've identified and we have some megatrends. And basically, once you have those, you just now built yourself like a Lego kit effectively of innovation building blocks. So then what you do is you just take a couple of them from different categories and put them together to start to see if you see white space. And the beauty of this method, and this, by the way, is a method that comes from a book called Innovation to the Core and a bunch of people that taught me how to do innovation back when I was at Emerson. But I mean, Innovation to the Core, and there's a field guide version of that book that literally walks you through these workshops that I'm talking about that you can get. And I make them 90 minutes because I do them virtually, but you could make them longer if you wanted to. I don't think they need to be. The beauty of this method, though, is that when you do these innovation workshops at the end and you actually combine these things together, number one, the user needs are in there, which is great per what we talked about before, Lou, and the answer to your question. Like the user needs are literally at the beginning of product development. But I think what's even more powerful about this method is that because you're bringing in these internal perspectives, there's no risk that anything you come up with in these workshops is like so blue sky that it's not actionable for this business now. Right. And so. That's really, really powerful because workshops kind of get a bad rap because they're like, oh, we went to the workshop and we had fun, but then nothing happened. Like nothing that you can build in this workshop because you're building Lego blocks that are literally built for your company can be so far outside the realm of possibility for you to go do it. You can actually start putting money, resources, time, people behind these business ideas that come out right away and see value immediately. That's the four areas of innovation, the framework, and basically how to kind of quickly get them and make them actionable in as short as effectively a quarter. I think if you try to go faster than that, call me because I'm very curious to see how you do it. But a quarter is a, is a good amount of time where I think people can stay focused. You have these kind of like high value workshops along the way, and then you have this big culmination at the end 
that results in businesses that you together identify, businesses or business, that you identify as the thing you're going to go build next. From your perspective, let's say a team doesn't have a UX researcher. What tools would you suggest other roles in that team to channel like that UX researcher hat, whether it's like a PM, designer, tech lead? Both PM and most UXers, so UX designer, anybody who likes talking to people, so marketing, there's another like, there's a lot of people in those spaces that I think you could easily leverage if you don't have a dedicated UX researcher. Frankly, Lindsay and I talk about this a lot. I think UX research doesn't have enough definition. And if it did, it would be deemed a much more essential early hire for small companies. But I think you can get a lot of this out of the product manager too. If the product manager cares deeply about users, which theoretically they do, the product manager should be absolutely capable of running interviews, doing studies. And you can always contract with a UX researcher who's had some time in the field to talk about like what kinds of studies and why, like what are the trade-offs between longitudinal and instant kind of sessions and versus showing prototypes versus talking about it, observation versus discussion. You can meet with a user researcher like myself and ask questions like that. And then going and executing the research, you come up with a plan that you just kind of go repeat. Not to make it sound like my job is super easy, but with help from an advisor, you can very quickly put together a program that somebody who is comfortable speaking to users could run. Katie, thank you so much. We'll definitely have you on in the future. There's so many good nuggets of information here. And so so thank you again for sharing your knowledge. What we'll do next is a bit of homework. Well, we'll kind of assign some homework for our listeners for the week. What can they actually tangibly do in the next week after they listen to this podcast? So one of the things that I took away that I wrote was look at one of these 90 minute workshops and do one of them. I think it would be great looking at this innovation of the core book or this field guide, that step-by-step workshop, how you can construct it and go do it and then see what happens. My homework would be a little more esoteric. Just Think about the last couple years or your industry. I think the orthodoxies question is so compelling to me. So if you're thinking about an industry or you're in an industry, you've been in an industry for a while, try to identify some orthodoxies this week. Try to think about what are some things in your industry that just aren't done. Why are airlines a hub and spoke model? Come up with some kind of orthodoxy about your industry. The housing industry is a great one. Healthcare is a huge one with a billion orthodoxies. There's orthodoxies in every industry. Give yourself permission to find those orthodoxies. So what are things that your industry would just never do? And then push on why. Why is that? So you can start to craft orthodoxies yourself. Because to me, the ripest potential for innovation and places you should go looking for user research is around areas that need to be desperately need to be re-examined in the way that we do them today. One takeaway that I learned from this session that I want to take is not only pay attention to interviewing end users, but also pay attention to the stakeholders involved and what's important to them and how they view whether it's qualitative or quantitative when it comes to getting their buy-in. I think that's something that when I have meetings, like I want to pay attention to that. I was going to say something pretty similar. I was impressed by the amount of work that seems to go in the research before it even happens and the amount of work surrounding alignments and just making sure everybody understands what's going to happen and also the goals behind the research before it happens. So yeah, I feel the same. I feel like listening more and making sure everybody is aligned. That's what I take away from this. I loved the hand to five facilitation trick for virtual meeting. That was a good one. I already made myself a note to share it with my team. It's a really good facilitation trick I'm taking away. Katie, where can our listeners find you? Anything you want to plug? Not at the moment. I'm, you know, I used to write on Medium pretty regularly and I need to get back to it. This is a good excuse. I actually don't use social media. So the best place to track me down is on LinkedIn these days or Twitter. My name is actually kind of weirdly spelled. It's Caitlin, K-A-T-L-Y-N. Um, B. Johnson, because I have one of the most boring names. Katie Johnson's a boring name. 
in the world. So Caitlin is the best way to track me down if you're looking for me. It's K-A-T-L-Y-N. Corinne, you have a podcast we can plug as well. Where can people find your podcast? I know it's in French. Caveat. So it is in French. It's called One Two C Four Podcast, which is a French word of play, but it is in French with the, my family, actually, my brother, my sisters. So if you ever speak French and are interested. And what is it about? Everybody asks me that, and it's not really about anything. We just chat and record the whole thing, and that's what it is. Great. Medea, Lindsay, anything you want to plug? I will yeah. always plug Focus Labs. If you're looking for a partner to build your newest product, expand or expand the capacity of your team. We're here to get, get teams unstuck. Thank you all. It looks like we finished up our coffee, so go level up. This has been Product Coffee, produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. Through our podcast partner, Anchor, you can now record a voice message and send us ideas or topics to cover, and who knows, we might end up playing it on the show. You can also become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.